I hope you appreciate the enormity of the task this morning to try to cover the, the uh, issue of abortion in 30 minutes. Uh, it's difficult to distill all the uh, thinking and, and debate that's gone on over this uh, issue in the past years in just these few moments. What I've tried, what, I've, what I would like to do is cover some of the, some of the main passages of Scripture that uh, speak to this uh, matter. I have written a, uh, a, a rather lengthy paper which will be available to you next week, and it will uh, fill in perhaps some of the places that we're not able to uh, discuss this morning. But I'll talk for about 25 minutes and then uh, give you about five minutes to ask questions because I realize that any time we talk about a subject like this, we raise more questions than we can possibly answer. In 1982, there were 1.5 million abortions performed in the United States. And since 1973, when the Supreme Court established the, uh, that abortion could be had on demand, there have been some 8 million abortions. It's now today the number one cause of death in the United States. Cardiovascular disease is number two. By way of contrast, since 1775, the United States has been involved in eight, uh, eight wars. The Revolutionary War, Civil War, the War of 1812, the Spanish-American War, two world wars, and uh, Korea and Vietnam. And during that period of time, we have lost something like 700,000 men to battle deaths. That means that last year in the United States, twice the number killed in all of the wars in, in over 200 years. Something needs to be done. And uh, the rate of, uh, of abortion is increasing at something like 10% a year. Last year, we put to death a population that would be 15 times the city of Boise. Staggering when you think about it. One of the problems in discussing this from the standpoint of Scripture is that there isn't much uh, data available to us in, in the Bible. Those of us that are Christians take our moral absolutes from Scripture, and where Scripture speaks clearly, then we're not at liberty to disagree. But when you look at the Bible, you find almost no information given. The only reference to abortion directly is Paul's uh, symbolic use of the term in 1 Corinthians 15 when he describes himself as someone born out of due time, an untimely birth. He's using the term there metaphorically of his spiritual new birth, so it really has no bearing on our discussion this morning. Scripture seems to be silent, and that's, that's odd because um, certainly abortion was known in ancient times. There's an Assyrian law from the time of Moses that made abortion capital offense. The Greek classical writers, Plato and Aristotle, refer to abortion. The Jewish writings, the mission of the Talmud, refer to abortion, but, but the Bible doesn't. For myself, I think it's because the writers of Scripture assumed that the fetus was human. It's somewhat like their argument for the existence of God. You won't find anywhere in the Bible an argument for the existence of God. It was simply assumed, and I, and I think the same thing is is true with with respect to the fetus. They assumed that it was human. 
But the problem then is how can we know what they believe since they don't spell it out? We have to draw our conclusions from inferences. And any time we draw those sorts of conclusions, we, we have to do so with a, with a humble attitude and an awareness that we, that we can be wrong. Now, I want to look at some scripture, and I think the cumulative effect of these scriptures will uh, convince you that the fetus is, is indeed human. It may not, but I hope, that, I hope that it will. In discussing this issue, the place to begin is with the sanctity of human life. We Christians believe that human life is, is sacred. We do not believe that all life is sacred, and that's an important distinction to make. Uh, baby seals and whales and perhaps even jackrabbits at certain times and in certain uh, circumstances ought to be protected because it's part of the mandate that God has given us to protect uh, creation. But uh, we do so because we have a responsibility as lords of the universe to take care of, of creation, not because that life is sacred. It's not. That's more Hindu or Buddhist than, than Christian. And that sort of thinking, the idea that all life is sacred, is what uh, has India in, in the problem that it's in today economically. All life is not sacred, but the position that the Bible takes is that human life is sacred. Now the question is, how shall we define uh, human? What, what do we mean when, when we say something or someone is a human being? How do we know what is, what is human? Well, the place to begin is in the book of Genesis. Let's turn to the first chapter of Genesis, verse 24. And that will at least get us, get us started on this discussion. Genesis is a book of uh, beginnings, origins, as you well know. Our word uh, Genesis comes from the Greek translation of this book, which they call Genesis, or beginnings. And it's an appropriate title because it tells us of the origin of of most things. And in verse 24, we're given the, uh, a description of the origin of animal life. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Notice he does not say man is made after their kind. We are, in one sense, animals. We can be classified that way, but in another sense, it's inappropriate to call us animals because we're not made after, uh, the, uh, after the animals and after their kind. We're made after the order of God. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. That's simply two ways of saying the same thing. Man is to be like, somewhat like God. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So we're a different order than the rest of creation. We have a responsibility to care for it, to protect it, to serve it, is actually the term that, the Hebrew term that, that's used because we have the responsibility of nobility to take care of those that, that are uh, subject to us. And then so there'll be no question in verse 27, we're told that God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him, and then so they, the ancients would understand, and so we would understand that by man, he means generically man and woman, male and female, he created them. So we are, we are unique. We are more like God than any of the rest of, of his creation. Because we're in his image. Now, the, the question is, what, uh, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And this is something that theologians have debated because it's not spelled out for us here in, in Scripture. But the conclusion is that he's not at all talking about physical likeness because God is a spirit. But rather spiritual likeness. God is a rational, moral, spiritual being. And so are we. We have reason. Uh, we are spiritual beings. Man is incurably religious. He just can't, can't live on a purely material level. He has a spiritual dimension that he cannot ignore, and he's a moral being. He knows the difference between right and wrong. He doesn't even have to be told the difference. He just knows, and he cares about such things. Animals act instinctually and mechanistically. They're different. They're of an entirely different order. Man is unique. He's like, he's like God. Now, the question is, when the biblical writers then look at the fetus, the, the unborn child, do they, do they ever consider that that unborn child bears the image of God? That's the issue. Now, let's look at some, uh, some other scriptures. Job, chapter 10, verse 8, Job 10, 8. It's on page uh, 627 in my Bible. I have no idea where it is in yours. Turn to, if you can find Psalms, turn left. It's that way. And Job is uh, in danger of falling into unbelief and despair here, as you know. His circumstances are uh, very difficult. And uh, he reminds himself that though this is so, God's intentions are are good for him. Your hands, I'm reading from verse 8, Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? He's thinking of himself as though he were Adam. As God created Adam immediately. He was the direct offspring of God, shaped with his hands from, from dust. Job says uh, the same is true of me. Now, he doesn't believe that he was created exactly like Adam, but he's going to go on to argue that, that he, his uh, conception was a direct creative act of God. Now, the ancients understood very well that, that there is a causal relationship between sexual intercourse and conception. They weren't fools. They understood that. But they always argued that... Uh, that uh, parents had no way to guarantee that there would be conception. For example, when, uh, when Eve describes the birth of the first child, Cain, though we're told that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived, the scripture has the facts correct. Eve goes on to say, I have received a man from the Lord. She saw the, the ultimate cause of that conception. That man came from God. Uh, it's said of Leah that God opened her womb. The same thing is said of Rachel and Ruth uh, received conception. It's the way the, the wording is. So that the biblical writers understood that children are unique gifts of God. Each are created 
in a, in a very special way by God. In short, they understood that little babies come from God. The stork doesn't bring them. They're not found under gooseberry bushes. They, they, they come from God. Okay. Uh, now, verse uh, 10. Did you not pour me out like milk? It's a symbolic reference to conception. And curdle me like cheese? The word curdle means, uh, it, it's a Hebrew verb for the hardening process. Something forming, like cheese forms out of milk. Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Now listen to this. You gave me life and you showed me kindness. It's the word that's used all the way through the Old Testament for the kind of, of covenant love that God has for his people. You showed me loyalty and love. And in your providence, that's the word that's, that the Hebrews used for divine intervention, God uh, intruding into the into human history and doing something miraculous. In your providence, you watched over my spirit. Do you understand what he's saying? That both the material part of the fetus, the skin and the bones and the sinews, the, the structure, the material part, and the immaterial part of the child come from God. The spirit comes from God. Now, you may raise the question whether it's appropriate to use poetry uh, from to, to derive theology. Uh, I heard someone say once, you wouldn't develop your astronomy from uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Uh, that's true, you wouldn't. But we're talking about inspired poetry. And furthermore, the New Testament writers frequently derive theology from poetry. It's just that you have to recognize the nature of poetry. It's full of symbols. When Job says uh, that I'm formed like cheese, he doesn't mean that little babies are made out of green cheese. He just means that the process is somewhat like the formation of cheese. But the facts, where the, where the, the facts are clear, such as God's intervention in the process, then we can, we can uh, develop uh, doctrine or truths from poetry. All right, let's go on to another um, poetic uh, discussion of this uh, matter, Psalm 139. This is my favorite psalm. <clears throat> the uh, New American Standard is wrong, I think, in the theme, that uh, the title that they give to this psalm. They, they say that the psalm refers to God's omniscience and his omnipresence. But if you read the psalm, it really has nothing to do with the fact that God knows everything and is everywhere present. It's not that God knows everything, it's that God knows me. That's the point. And wherever I am, that's where God is. That's, that's the way he's arguing through the psalm. Now notice, O oh Lord, you have searched me so that you know me. I'm retranslating to give you the idea of, of the uh, sentence. The second clause is a result clause, I think. You, you have searched me, you have ransacked me. It's, it's the word that's used for the uh, process of searching out the land when the 12 spies were sent into Canaan. You, you've investigated every part of my life. You thoroughly understand me inside and out, and you know me. That's the point with the result, that I'm well known. You know when I sit down and when I, when I stand up. And that's a figure of speech, the sort of thing that uh, we mean when we describe a meeting and we say the rich and the poor are there. We don't mean that they were just rich and just poor. It's called a merism in, 
in English grammar, to, it, the idea is to express totality. All social classes are there. When David says, you know me when I sit down and when I rise up, he doesn't mean that God just knows when he sits down and when he stands up. It's that God knows every affair of his life, every uh, action that he takes, every move that he makes. God knows. You uh, perceive my thoughts from afar. The word thoughts means intentions or yearnings or aspirations or desires. God knows the deepest longings of your hearts. He knows what you want. You discern my going out and my lying down. It's another merism. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. In other words, uh, God not only knew what David said, he knew what he meant to say when when he didn't say what he meant to say, when he misspoke himself. You hem me in behind and before. It's like a siege works to protect him. You have laid your palm upon me. Picture of David being hidden away in in God's hands. Such knowledge of me is too wonderful. He's not talking about God's knowledge in general, although God does know everything. But here he's talking about his knowledge of David. Such knowledge of me is too wonderful. It's the word for miraculous. It's beyond reason, beyond understanding. Can't comprehend it. It's too lofty for me to attain. In other words, God knows David better than David knows himself. And then the implications of that knowledge follow. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is the... uh, section of this psalm from which Francis Thompson took his play, The Hound of Heaven. God is relentless in his pursuit and in love. If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Another merism. Can't go high enough or deep enough to get away from God. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, that is, if I go to the east, if I settle on the far side of the sea, the sea he refers to as the Mediterranean, if I go to the west, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. So he's secure. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. If I go to a place, David says, where I can't see my hand in front of my face, even there God sees me. Even if the circumstances are dark, even if the morality around me is darkness, God sees me. Now, notice how he argues. (coughs) Pardon me. Verse 13 begins with preposition for, or conjunction, for, because. Now, this is the way David is going to argue. I know that God knows me when I'm in darkness, because in the darkest place on the face of the earth, when I was in my mother's womb, God knew me there. Now, notice. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Same phrase that Job used to refer to the intricate process of weaving together all the parts of his body. Actually, the Hebrew word for embroidery. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I thank you because I am awesome and wonderfully made. Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and said, that is awesome? Fantastic. <laughs> we tend to look in the mirror and we, oh, you know, the ears, too big. They stick straight out. The nose is too big. Whatever. Too short, too tall, too lumpy here. Not enough muscle here. 
David says, I look at myself and I say, it is, I'm wonderful. In fact, he goes on to say, your works are wonderful. What were his works? David's body. They're wonderful, he said. The whole thing is knit together and constructed, put together so that it perfectly reflects God's plan for David. No mistakes. Your personality, uh, your intelligence quotient. Uh, your tendency to be overweight or slim or whatever. That's all a part of the preconceived plan that God had. And he goes on to say, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. That's his mother's womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Again, it's a symbol for the, the hidden uh, dark places, uh, his mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Uh, that the word that's translated unformed body is the Hebrew word for, uh, for the uh, embryo, golem. All the days were ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, let me, let me retranslate. Literally, that, that line reads, All of them were written day by day from your book. Now, this is what I think he's saying. It's a difficult uh, verse to translate, but it seems to me that he's not talking about some plan that is written for David after he uh, after he's born. It's rather talking about the plan that God wrote that determined the kind of body he was to have, the body that was being shaped in the womb. You ever buy one of these uh, cheap bicycles that you put together yourself, and you get a little uh, little piece of paper with it, a little schematic that tells you how the whole thing is put together. Well, that's what David is saying. It's as though God has a how-to book. And uh, he's not thinking literally, you know, that God looks at the book and sees that the leg bone is connected to the knee bone and that sort of thing. He's he's rather saying, it's it's, I'm put together according to a preconceived plan. There's a schematic in God's mind that determined how I was to be formed in the womb. And then in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts. That's the same word in verse 2 that's translated uh, longings, or I translated longings or aspirations. David says, I have yearnings, God has yearnings for me. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awoke, the verb is past tense, it's normally translated present, but it's past. When I awoke, I was still with you. I think David is referring to his birth. When he woke up in birth, he became self-conscious for the first time. God was still with him. And so he's arguing that God had been with him all along. See, You see how David depicts himself as a spiritual being with a relationship with God prior to his birth. Now, one other passage. Let's turn back in Psalm 51 to Psalm 51. This, as you know, was the psalm that <clears throat> grew out of David's act of adultery with Bathsheba. It's a, song, a psalm of penitence. And he says in verse 5, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Note that line, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, he's not saying that conception is sin. He's simply saying that he recognizes that he was morally responsible when he was in the womb. Surely you desired truth in the inner parts. The verb is past. Surely you desired truth in the inner parts. And, and, and you might think that David's referring here to his own body. 
that after he was born, God had wanted him desired truth in David, but that's not what he's saying because the word is translated inner parts means a covered over place, and it's a it's one of the words that's used for the womb. It says, You desired truth when I was still in the womb. You taught me, again, the verb is past, you taught me wisdom in the bottled up place. Now I don't think David's talking about his body at all. He's talking about his mother's body. And he's saying that uh, prior to birth God had written his law. He had taught him wisdom. He had written his law in his heart. That's what Paul, that's the term that Paul uses in Romans. That David was a morally responsible being even before he was born. Now we have to remember we're working from inference. I, I would like to find a passage in the Old Testament that says the, the human fetus is truly a human being. But you don't find that sort of thing. All you find are are implicit statements, inferences that you can make, and that's as far as you can go. And therefore, we need to be humble. We need to be gentle with people who, Christians who disagree. I have some Christian friends who are as fully committed to the authority of Scripture and its errancy as I am or, or you are. But they do not believe that the Old Testament teaches that, uh, that the fetus is human. They, they describe it as, as man in the making or, or some such thing. Generally, they come out at the same place we do because they believe because we do not know, we cannot be God, we don't, we don't have his prerogatives, we can't make a decision about abortion, therefore we should not abort uh, unborn children. But uh, they say we, we simply can't know, we have to be agnostic. I think we can, but I base it on, on inference. I, I think the, the human embryo is fully human. Created in the image of God, a special creation of his that he knows and loves and cares for. And he's implanted in that unborn child as it develops in the womb a, a moral sense so that, that they can fellowship with him. That means then that uh, abortion is sin. It's wrong. It's something we need to resist. You have to realize that in 1973, when our Supreme Court uh, tendered the ruling that made abortion on demand uh, legal, they really ran roughshod over a long-standing tradition in the United States that uh, human life is sacred. They ran roughshod over evangelical Christians who based their beliefs on, on Scripture. They ran roughshod over the uh, Hippocratic Oath that physicians take that prohibits abortion. They ran roughshod over the majority of people in the United States in uh, referenda that were, uh, that were uh, carried out before the Supreme Court decision. The overwhelming majority of people in the United States were against abortion. They took none of that into consideration. Their decision was based solely on naturalistic logic. And I think we as Christians need to speak out and speak up and make ourselves heard. If the, the Supreme, if the fetus is human, then the Supreme Court decision makes Herod's slaughter of the innocents looks like child play. We have killed 1.5 million people this last year. And I think we cannot be silent. Silence uh, at this point is not golden, it's, uh, it's sinful for us. 
We're all responsible. The mother who, uh, who makes that choice, the parents and physicians who aid and abet it, and uh, in one sense our somewhat neutral stance that permits this mentality to, to go on. Now I want to make three observations, and then I'll give you a chance to ask, ask some questions. Number one, we are engaged in a great spiritual war, and we need to keep that straight. The real enemy is Satan, not pro-abortionists. Jesus described Satan as a, as a liar and a murderer. He cons and dupes and deceives people into thinking that, that human life is not valuable, has no real worth. Man is trash. And uh, by purveying this idea, he has cheapened human life with the result that human life is being taken. He is the murderer, not necessarily the abortionist. The abortionist is the puppet on the stage. He's the master strategist, the puppeteer who's behind, behind the stage. And Paul makes it very clear when he says that, that our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against uh, pro-choice uh, people, per se. It's against the powers that lie behind them, against principalities and powers in, uh, in high places and spiritual places. And therefore, we must not lay aside the mighty weapons of our spiritual warfare, which are prayer and obedience to the truth and love and proclamation of the truth. Now, we need to proclaim the truth, and we need to live it out. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we need to make that proclamation in a, in a, in a, with a real and deep sense of dependence upon, upon God. We must not uh, rush out into the arena without those, those weapons. It's, it's sheer folly if we do. We can't do that. We need to remember, too, in our debates with people who advocate choice or abortion on demand, that they are human beings also. And if we as Christians advocate a high view of man, then in our conversation and our debates with them, we need to recognize that they are human beings as well whom God loves. Jesus made that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that if I call my brother uh, Raka, it's an Aramaic word meaning knucklehead or stupid, or a fool, which is an even stronger term, it means a rebel against truth, godless is the idea, then uh, I have assaulted his uh, worth as a human being just as much as if I had uh, assaulted him physically and tried to kill him. So that in our debates with people, and we must debate this issue, we need to do so with patience, recognizing that they are not the enemy, they have simply been victimized by the enemy. We need to be truthful, but we need to be loving. Now, the, the, the second thing that I would say is that we do, we do need to speak up and to speak out. Uh, if you have access to, uh, uh, to people's ear, then use that opportunity to speak the truth, always in love, but speak it out. And if you have access to the legal process, we need to do what we can to, to change those laws that make uh, abortion on demand possible. People say to me, well, that's, that's legislating righteousness. You shouldn't do that. Of course it is. Of course it's legislating righteousness. That's what law does. 
Paul says in Romans, uh, that's a legitimate function of law. When we say to someone, you shall not murder, we're legislating righteousness. Now, we can't legislate inner righteousness. We can't demand that people be loving or courteous or gracious. But we can legislate concerning actions. And I think we, we ought to do what we can as Christians to make our effect known within our sphere of influence, to introduce righteousness into that area where we're concerned, and, and support and work toward laws that will overturn the 1973 decision of our Supreme Court. And the third thing I would say is that we need to be sensitive to the young women around us that are making this decision. They've been snowed and conned by the world into believing that the child that they carry is nothing more than a piece of human tissue, but not, not human. And we need to see that that's Satan's ploy to destroy human life. And do what we can to encourage them to make a choice to carry the baby to full term, to protect it and bring it into the world, even though it may be for them unwanted. My answer when, when people say, well, aren't there so many unwanted babies in the world, is yes, but it's true, there are unwanted babies, but there are so many wanting parents. Encourage them to, to put the baby up for adoption. Perhaps we need to work for an easier protocol to, to make uh, adoption, to facilitate adoption and those sorts of things. But I think we need to encourage them along those lines. But more than give verbal encouragement, I think we need to do something put ourselves on the line in terms of giving financial help and perhaps opening up our homes so that these mothers can be cared for and sequestered while they, while they uh, go through the embarrassing process of bringing this child uh, to full term and, and to birth. Or perhaps uh, if they make the hard decision to keep the baby, to give them aid, financial aid, and help them in every way we can. I talked to a young woman this morning who said that she made that choice and and the most loving thing that Christians did was to offer to babysit for her so she could go back to school and equip herself for a, for a vocation. We mustn't just talk about it. We need to do something about it. And perhaps most important of all, to use our, our knowledge as Christians to introduce them to the Savior so they can be freed from the guilt of the past and have hope for the future for themselves and for the child. We just had this sort of thing happen a few months back. Some of you know, one of the families here in this church took in a young woman who at first was planning to abort her child. And uh, they encouraged her not to, and they committed themselves to staying with her through the whole process, took, took her into their home, cared for her financially and emotionally and spiritually until the child was uh, put up for adoption and a family in another part of the state took the child. I get... I get notes from them every once in a while just expressing how delighted they are with this, with this, uh, this little gift from God. But as a result of that practical, tangible expression of love, this little girl became a Christian. And her mother became a believer. And her father became a Christian. And that family was united. And the father in the family led his father to Christ. His father just passed away a couple of weeks ago just after he had uh, learned of, of God's love for him. And I look at a situation like that and I say, well, that's, that's a redemptive uh, thing to take a, a tragedy like this and make something positive and redemptive and constructive out of it. But that's what the Lord delights to do. Uh, our time is gone.
I have maybe a minute or two for questions before I make just one concluding comment. Any questions? Yes. How do we argue the skeptic or the one who's disbelieving that the verses in Job and the verses in Psalms to David are not just to Job and David, but to all? Well, that's a problem you have really in, in all of Scripture. To what extent are these verses universally applicable? And uh, all we can say is that both Job and and David were inspired writers who were describing their own experiences, which uh, normally in Scripture we apply to ourselves. And there's no reason why they would be unique creations and we would not. He's, they're talking about man, as man is. So I think these, these verses are clearly applicable. If you didn't say that, then none of Scripture would be applicable. One of the interesting things, uh, read about uh, the way the, the New Testament writers use the Old Testament is that they very often will introduce a quotation from the Old Testament with a present tense verb. Isaiah says, for example. David says, not said, but he says. And the clear implication is that it's to be applied to his, his contemporaries. Yes? Personal righteousness is not merely a matter of proclamation. We have to be willing to live it out no matter what it costs. Yes, now, any time you discuss this particular issue, there inevitably will be women there that have gone through abortions. And uh, very often they've done so on insufficient information. They've been a part of the world system that's duped them into believing that, that this child is not is not really a, a man. And what can we say? Well, I simply have to say what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, he does not condemn. I do not condemn you. There's forgiveness in Christ. It doesn't make any difference what we have done or how far we have gone, how, how great and how devastating our sin has been in the past. We're, we're forgiven. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that was probably as... Uh, badly confused about their sexuality as any group of people in the world. And he said, I have presented you to Christ as a chaste virgin. 
In other words, you're starting all over. It's a new life. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of life is brand spanking new. Start over. And start believing God for the grace and the resources to face what you have to do next. You can forget the past. The Old Testament tells us that our transgressions have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. In effect, an infinite distance from us. As my father used to say, he puts them in the deepest part of the ocean and then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing here. They're all gone. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Father, this is such a um, such an enormous subject, and it has such enormous implications for for us in our society. We tend to uh, to be blind somewhat to what's happening, and not at all involved. We we ask that you would help us to be salt and light wherever we are in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in the the realm where we have influence. Help us to be outspoken critics of our culture. To not to align ourselves with the unfruitful works of darkness, as Paul tells us, but rather to reprove them, but to do so in a spirit of, of great love and compassion for people that have been victimized, and caught up, and used by Satan to accomplish his purposes. Deliver us, Lord, from uh, the name-calling and the harshness that often is associated with these things and help us to, to be courageous and... Uh, to be loving and yet courageous in what we have to say. And we ask that you'd use us to reverse this trend. We don't know how you'll use us, but we want to be available and put, put, to, your, uh, put to your intended purpose. Help us to have wherever we go that, that gracious, redemptive uh, uh, influence upon those around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.